Thank you, worship team. Before we try anything here, <laughs> um, let's ask God's Spirit to teach us. Lord, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We can have great confidence that as we study it, we study your mind, your wisdom, your mercy. We also recognize God in our humanness. We need your spirit to help us understand spiritual truth. So open our minds, open our hearts to receive your instruction this morning. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Began a series called Living Together as God's Very Own People. What, is it, what does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to live together, to serve together as his body, as his chosen people called together in a geographic location at this specific time, in this specific place? What does it mean to live together as God's holy people? That's the emphasis on the book of Titus, and that's what we're studying. And so if you could go to chapter 1, verse 5 through 9, we'd like to continue understanding what it means to live together as God's holy people. Paul writes to Titus. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of disaping or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. I, uh, as I was reading this and, and praying and reflecting on this text, there, there are a couple things I'll let you into um, what went through my mind this week. One is I, it dawned on me, um, I've spent over half my life now in church leadership. That kind of stunned me when I thought about it. I'm like, wow, that's, that's a few years, as my kids would probably say. Um, and so there my mind went back to a lot of them years and, and thought about that. And, and it certainly has been mixed with many experiences. Great joy, great victories, been times of grief, hurt for me and my family. Honestly, there's times, if I was honest, it felt easier just to step away. Except one thing, God's call. That's the one thing I guess you couldn't talk me out of. As long as that call's there, I know I need to be obedient. But there was a second thought, and I wrestled with this. I said, God, how do I talk to your people about leadership and following elders 
it seems so self-serving, right? I mean, to get up in front of a people and say, okay, here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to listen to your elders. And here I am, an elder, a pastor. God, it seems so self-serving. I, I'm, I would rather skip these verses. And I really sense God say to me, are you ashamed of my pattern? Matt, are you ashamed? Are you ashamed the way I designed my church? After all, I am the head. I heard God say, remind me, this is my church. This isn't yours or any elder's church. This is my church. So preach what my word says, unapologetically. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do that. To review, Paul begins in verse 5. He says, Titus, there's a reason I left you in Crete, and I, and, and I want you to set in order some things. And I, I think you remember we talked about the fact that those words set in order is a medical term. It means like to set straight. That which may have been crooked, set it straight so there can be healing, so there can be strength. Do that, Titus. Now, what are elders? He says, I left you in Crete, you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. Now we know overview of scripture, we see that to be a constant theme. Paul telling um, the other disciples and others, hey, set elders in leadership in every city. It was God's design as the early church spread. Now we don't use the term much in our everyday vocabulary, but it's a common word in biblical understanding, so it's important we understand what Paul's getting at when he discusses the necessity for elders. In verse 5, he uses the word elder. In verse 7, he uses the word overseer. They're referring to the same person. I would include pastors with elders, used interchangeably. Apostle Paul uses two Greek words interchangeably here. Elder, presbyteros, the original meaning was old man or bearded one. No one wants that one, right? We're not going to quit using that one. Um, no, just kidding. Um, that's what it meant, literally. And we'll talk a little bit more about where that came from. It's the idea of maturity. Been around the block, we would say. A lot of, good, a lot of experience. The second word is episkopos, which literally means to watch over. Presbyteros, found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, elders, these old men, these bearded ones, were instrumental in many of the decisions that were made as the people came out of Egypt and wandered through the wilderness. Moses gets all the credit and the blame. But if we read carefully, we'll notice that there are many elders, there are many mature people who were responsible for the leadership of the people of Israel. Now, episkopos, that word, was commonly used by Greeks. And interesting, when the people of Israel came back from captivity and restored Jerusalem, some of the leaders and administrators of rebuilding were given the same title. And so the terms, quite naturally, came into use in the New Testament fellowships. Because as those churches were founded, they needed not only mature people of experience who could function in leadership roles, but also people who could administrate, oversee, care for, and be responsible for this community. In other words, God had various roles for people. It was his design that to care for, to nurture his people, that they could carry out his mission, he had a design in place. And part of that design included elders. Alexander Strauch says this, 
as humble, God-fearing men, both the Old and New Testament elders, were to be spiritual guides who were responsible to wisely, effectively lead and exhort the community. They were to know, teach, and uphold God's word to care for the community's well-being with sensitivity and compassion, and to protect the people by administrating justice and dealing with sin and false doctrine. So the question, as I read this text, is why does Paul use both words? Well, I suggest the word for elders used to describe his office and his character. The word for overseer, overseer describes more their function. So you got elder, you got office, character, overseers to function. An elder is to oversee. That's the main part of his call. Biblically, an elder and overseer is different from a deacon role. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, we see some differences. We don't see deacons giving the same, I guess the word would be authority in the church as you see the scriptures give an elder. The function, there's other passages of scripture to help us really narrow down and clarify a little bit more what the function of an elder is. Again, here in Titus 1, 7, it's an overseer. When I go to 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, it gives us another indication of what this oversight looks like. Peter writes, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And there's that word again, oversight. We also have another word introduced there, shepherd. It's the idea of helping to lead and guide and care for. Acts 20, 28, Paul, as he, with great compassion and great love for the elders in Ephesus, he says, be on your guard, protect the flock, that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of. So elders have this role of protecting and guarding the flock. Titus 1.9, right in our text below, a couple verses later, instructs elders to hold fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. They're to guard the truth. It implies knowledge, it implies discernment. Titus is given the task of ordaining elders and cities for these churches needed people who are characterized by dignity, maturity, and wisdom, and who are going to be seriously involved in leading, overseeing, and caring for the fellowship of believers. It was God's design. There's another point we can learn about elders' role, is that there was a plurality of elders. Collective leadership was displayed in Jerusalem Conference recorded in Acts 15. James instructed the sick to call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, James 5.14. Acts 14, 22-23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, plural, in each of the founded church. In Acts 20.17, when leaving Ephesus, Paul summoned the elders, plural, of the church to meet with him. Paul did not consider a church to be fully developed and qualified. Functioning elders had been appointed. Elders, plural. When writing to churches in Asia Minor, Peter exhorted the elders, plural, to pastor the flock, which I just read. 
And so an examination of all the scripture passages that mention church leadership overwhelmingly indicates plural leadership of individual congregations. That's why we at Elam here have a plurality of elders. We believe it's the biblical model. Practically speaking, though, if you were to talk practically, as a congregation considers elders and who would serve, a church should never appoint an elder who cannot graciously work in a team setting. This isn't a one-man show. Elders need to be team players. It means the character of the elders requires a willingness to subordinate their egos to the will of the group, in a sense, to the will of God. Thus, humility becomes a key characteristic trait. Former vice president of the Evangelical Free Church of America said this, Leadership in the church is a sacred task given to a few by the Lord to ensure the health of his people and the expansion of his kingdom on this earth. I would agree with that. Verse 5, Titus was instructed to appoint. Now, some could say, how hard is that to appoint some elders? Why don't we just put some names in a hat, pull out some, bingo. We got some elders. Let's just slap them into place, get those names, and let them rock and roll. It doesn't seem to be God's plan, does it? Others would say, let's pick randomly. Let's just take some names and people maybe who've, we, we kind of popular in our minds, maybe we know them a little bit better, and let, let's just put their name on a ballot. Now let's just see what happens. Is that really how it happened? It doesn't seem to. Even in the case of deacons, there seemed to be a congregational affirmation of the character of these people, the giftedness of the call, and the call. And the selection of these elders, we find in Scripture, the model is with prayer and fasting. That God's people took seriously God's design to the point that they quit eating for a while. They devoted themselves to intense corporate prayer saying, God, raise up. Let us see who these men are that you want to lead your church. It was serious how they selected these people. And these men appointed as elders had to have certain qualifications. And again, prayer and fasting was a big part of this selection. And since elders were entrusted with God's most valued possession, his children, he must be a steward of integrity. An elder personal example teaches more effectively than his words ever could. And our Lord taught in this way and encouraged elders to do so. We know from Scripture that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Perhaps that's the best job description for an elder is to serve. To serve humbly and faithfully. Well, Titus, Paul tells Titus, here's some qualifications of elders. And he goes through a list. Now, one thing is clear in all texts on qualifications. 1 Timothy 3 is another one. They deal first and foremost with character and the pursuit of godly character. They're to be above reproach, not perfect, because that would certainly narrow down the choice, wouldn't it? <laughs> There'd be nobody serving as an elder. Perfection's not the issue here. The issue is such a deep, desire for more of Jesus, that it compelled them to pursue Christ's likeness in every area of their life. Had they arrived, any of these men? Absolutely not. Were they perfect? Absolutely not. But there was a recognition from the congregation 
but they were pursuing Christ-likeness, that there was a call of God on their life. There were spiritual gifts that enabled them to lead God's people. That's what these characteristics talk about. As we go through this list, namely, if any man be above reproach. It's this idea of being blameless. In other words, nobody could come and say of an elder and said, hey, they're playing in sin. I mean, they're not being obedient. But they're above reproach. They're pursuing Christ's likeness, and everyone who knew them, especially those who knew them well, can say, I can testify. They're really pursuing Christ's likeness. There's a consistency of character in their life. Now, Paul, in a parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, points out that this blamelessness has to be something that's not only recognized by believers, but he says must have a good reputation with outsiders. So it's not just that an elder was supposed to be recognized within the body as pursuing Christ's likeness, but there was something winsome about their life that even the unbelievers said, man, I see something. That's a, that person's different. And so above reproach carried it beyond the walls of the church. They were to have a committed marriage. They were to be faithful to their wife. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, some would say that's polygamy. First of all, how do you fathom having more than one wife? I can't even fathom that. I just can't. That goes well beyond my realm of trying to understand how that's even remotely possible. And so I look at this and thinking, yeah, this ain't a problem. Um, it seems to me, though, the apostles pointing out that elders were to be known for their sexual purity, their faithfulness to their wife. If you want to really look at it, literally seems to be the, the husband of one wife. Um, maybe some other words have come into play. A one-woman man uh, is how some have interpreted this. Um, but they were supposed to be faithful to their spouse, to their wife. Others see this statement as a reference to divorce and remarriage. The church father, Tertullian, went as far as to say it could only be married man who had been married once. If his wife died, he was not to remarry or his eldership would be taken away. But if we were to take it purely at face value, it would disqualify single men from eldership. That would mean neither the Lord himself nor Paul could have been elders. We know they were single. So conclusively, I think we have to acknowledge that this is saying an elder is to be a one-woman man committed to his wife, faithful to his wife. He's supposed to be responsible at home. Look at that. Husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation. I hate that word this morning. Dissipation or rebellion. What's that mean? Having children who believe. The parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, Paul explains why he believes this. Is he adds what seems to be an incontrovertible rhetorical question. If a man can't manage his family, how on earth... Can he manage the church? But some questions come into my mind, not just now, but often throughout the years. What about one whose family is grown and gone? I mean, what if your child's 22 and they decide to abandon the faith and leave? Does that disqualify this person from eldership? What about one who brought his kids up in the family where he's clearly a spiritual authority, led them in the way of the scriptures. He was recognized as head of the family. He gave every opportunity for the kids to grow up in a nurture and admonition of the Lord, but they were a prodigal and left home. Does this qualify, this person from eldership? I've known over the years many great godly leaders in their home whose wives have testified to their, their godly leadership in the home, their, 
faithfulness, their consistency, whose children made a decision to walk away? Is that person disqualified? It seems to me we have to decide how long a father, first of all, is responsible for his kids. I mean, somewhere along the line, a child has to be accountable to God for their own choices. I think the apostle really is talking about men who are clearly exercising spiritual leadership in their home. I think there's some blanks and some scenarios we try to figure out, but let's take it at face value. An elder is to be one who's giving spiritual leadership in their home. Because the reality is there's no guarantee that our children are going to believe. Even Billy Graham's son walked away for a while, didn't he? And God used him mightily still. But if the father cannot exhibit in his own family leadership, authority, a winsome Christian testimony, then it's highly unlikely that the elder could ever hope to have any meaningful leadership or exercise any spiritual authority in the church of Jesus Christ. He's to be responsible at home. We have another phrase repeated. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, one who's given a trust, a duty, someone who takes care of something valuable. Areas that spell out. He goes on to spell out areas of maybe what this looks like to live above reproach. Look what he says. This, this elder is not to be self-willed. It's the opposed to God's will. They're not supposed to go down the road that they decide is the road that they want to go down. They're to be, have, a, have as a point of reference God's will. They're to keep looking here. God's steward must not be self-willed, not quick-tempered. It speaks to this idea of self-control. Proverbs 14, 29 puts it this way. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. The elder is to have great understanding that he has self-control over his anger. He's not to exhibit folly by being quick-tempered. He's not to be addicted to wine. Again, notice it speaks to self-control, discipline, to not have as a problem of of addiction to alcohol, and certainly in our society, um, that's rampant. Elder must be incredibly careful. Now here's a word we don't often use, pugnacious. Who's used that word this last week? No, I didn't think so. Maybe, maybe Jerry. But other than that, pugnacious is not really on our lips much. The word means to have a quarrelsome or combative nature. Now it becomes a little clearer, doesn't it? it it's an elder's not to be someone who wants to win the argument, but wants God's will. They're not to be combative when someone disagrees. They're not to be quarrelsome. It's someone who, in the midst of quarrels and conflicts, brings a gentleness, a listening ear. And if they're combative, they shouldn't be an elder. They're not fond of sordid gain. Once again, another word we don't use much literally means not fond of filthy gain. It means not to make a living dishonestly. In their vocation, are they deceitful in their billing, selling faulty products, those type of things. 1 Timothy 3.3 adds a little bit more to this by saying there should be free from the love of money. Then he moves, though, to some positive things. He says they're not to be this, but they're to be this, hospitable. Literally, friends to strangers. 
Now, I've heard people said, see, elders are supposed to have people over to their homes. It's not what that's saying necessarily. That's one way to be hospitable. It's to be a friend to strangers. It's an attitude. It's that idea of I'm called to a mission to go into all the world and make Christ known. And so one way to do that, I just want to be a friend to strangers. I just want them to see Jesus. I don't want to judge them. I just want to love them. And so they're hospitable. They're a friend to strangers. They're warm. They're, they demonstrate care. They don't care what status of life the person has. Elders are to be hospitable. They're also to be sensible. Literally means to have a whole mind. What does that mean? Well, I thought of some other scripture to cross-reference. 1 Corinthians 14.20, they're to be mature in their thinking. Romans 12.3, they're to be humble in their thinking. Colossians 3.1-2, they need to have the mindset on God's interests, God's purposes of eternal things. They're to be of the same mind. In other words, they think in a unifying manner. What will help unify the church? James 1.8 warns us a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. No wonder an elder is called to be sensible, not unstable. The words next are used just and devout. It's the one who acts rightly, free from wickedness, men who pursue holiness. Again, it's an imperfect person who's seeking righteous living. And then he goes on after that to say self-control. And to a degree, you could look through that whole list and say, well, yeah, I mean, there's a self-controlled element in all of it, right? It's like he put a, puts a bow on it. They're supposed to be self-controlled men. Temperate is the idea. It means to curb one's desires or impulses. Now, by implication, it doesn't mean they don't have those desires or impulses because we have our flesh that wages war against our soul. They have those, but they're self-controlled that by the power of the Holy Spirit in their life, they're able to curb them. They're able to avoid them. God's word says an elder is to be a man who is walking in the spirit and does not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. And finally, he says they're to hold fast the faithful word, sound doctrine. They lead not by personal opinion as their guide or standard, but God's word. It's to be one who studies the scriptures, one who holds to sound doctrine, exhorts with it, encourages people, and at times even refutes with it. This is all well and good to leave this here, and we can all amen it because it's God's pattern. I mean, how do you argue with it? Um, but how, how do we all interact and respond to that? How do we do that? Well, first, I want to talk what the scriptures tell us about elders' obligations. And... Um, at this point, I think I would really hope that you men here would cooperate with me. If you've served as an elder here at Elam or are serving, could you stand, please? Thank you, men, for serving. They've served you well, and I, I praise God for you, and you would probably be able to share some stories of how it's not always easy. Um, but you've served well. And if you don't know that I, biblically, once an elder, always an elder. And so just because you stepped from the official um, particular, um, the way arrangement, the way we do it here at, Eldom, uh, at Elam, you still are, have that calling of helping 
lead and guide and encourage God's people. That's why I like it when our elders say, you know what, let's talk to one of the former elders and kind of get their input. I hear that at times. I think that's really a good practice um, to, talk, to talk to them bearded ones. I'm <laughs> just joking. What are the elders' obligations? What are they? One, they're to recognize their steward of a call. I find it in Titus 1.7. The overseer must be above reproach. There's a call here, a call to character, a call to live out as a steward. Recognize you're a steward of a call. You're entrusted the leadership of something so valuable that Christ shed his blood for it, his church. Recognize you're a steward of a call. 1 Peter 5.3, be an example to the flock. Intentionally choose to model your life, your decisions, your standards, your activities, your attitude. There's things in my life I know I could do and still be biblically obedient. But there's things I choose not to because I don't want anything to be misconstrued. And I, I think that's good. Plus, I know myself well enough to know I don't want to put myself in situations where I could screw up. And so part of my goal is to remove myself from those situations. So hopefully, I can be example to the flock. Acts 20, 28, elders, calls you to be on your guard, to study, to stand and lead on the truth of Scripture. Be on your guard. James 5, 14 through 15, plead for the flock. Plead for God's people. It's not only those who call on the elders to come pray, but to intercede for the flock. We as elders have committed to spending more of one of our meetings a month really devoted primarily just to pray for you, to pray over you, to pray for those hurting, those who need guidance, those who've lost someone. We, we want to plead for you. We believe God answers prayer. So elders, recognize stewardship of a call. Be an example to the flock. Be on the guard. Plead for the flock. But interesting, the scriptures call you as a congregation. You have some obligations. I learned this before I entered leadership. I was a, a, a young Christian, I'm maybe four years, five years into faith. I plugged into a church over in Wisconsin and, and loved the church and was serving in it, but I, but I was not in leadership. And there was a pastor there who was an incredible teacher, probably one of the best teaching pastors I've ever heard, and I was growing so much under his teaching. Then all of a sudden, something happened. There were rumblings that... The elders were asking the pastor to step away for some time. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, this guy can, this guy's bringing it. I mean, this guy really can teach. I mean, how could they do this? How could the elders do this? I mean, seriously. And then I remember, I still remember it quite well, thinking this through, thinking, wait a minute, I know this group of five men. I know they love God. I know they're men of prayer. Certainly, among that group, who's praying? They got to be listening to God. 
And I got to pray for them, A, and two, do the thing that I think is really hard for all of us, trust that they're hearing from God. I know as an individual I've missed what God said to me, but when you get five guys together who are seeking God, I think there's confidence in that. I remember and I learned at that point I had an obligation to those elders, and it was to pray for them. So what does Scripture emphasize that a congregation is to do? How are they to respond to God's pattern? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. I'm not going to read it. I hope you will. They are to show and appreciate and esteem. Here's two key words. Ready? In love. That's what an obligation a congregation has towards our leaders and me towards other fellow leaders. Show, appreciate, and esteem in love. 1 Timothy 5, 17. You are to honor and give practical support to leaders to elders. I look up Hebrews 13 because it starts getting pretty serious. Hebrews 13, 7. The author of Hebrews writes, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. All these men you saw stood, some serving right now, some who have, as you've observed them, the exhortation is, what you saw them, their example, they set follows. Follow that imitation as they follow Christ. But go to verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The author goes on to say, and pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Two things right there, right? Submit, obey, and pray for your elders. This is hard. I get it. And this is really hard in our independent society. And we only need to turn on a TV and see the volatile nature of government and leadership. It is really, really easy to kind of take that cue but scriptures, as far as a congregation's obligations, are to submit, obey, and follow their elders. And let's be honest, it's by faith a lot, isn't it? You're trusting God to lead. You're trusting God. You're trusting that when you get on your knees and pray for that group of men, that God's hearing your prayers, that he's answering. And I think you can take great faith in God. I think we can take great faith in God's pattern. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20 says, congregation is to guard the reputation of leadership by protecting them from false accusations. In other words, if someone has an accusation, they're not just supposed to randomly listen to it. They're supposed to take a witness, if there is a witness, and then deal with it. So in a sense, they are to help guard the reputation of their leadership. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, and as I just read there in Hebrews, they are to pray for the elders. Paul said it this way, brethren, pray for us. Every elder who stood in this room, whether they served in the past or serve now, I'm sure said multiple times, would you pray for us? And believe me, they meant it. And every time they say it, they mean it. God's people need to be praying, coming alongside the elders' leadership in prayer. 
As I said, I really wrestle with this even now as I go through these. There's a part of me that's saying, this seems so self-serving. Um, but I'm back to God's original conviction. I thought of a story um, I had in middle school, I had to take a class. It was a sewing class. Back in the day when you had to take sewing classes. I hated that class. I, can I be honest? I mean, if you're a middle school guy, you get math, you get science, you get it. Sewing? Not even on my radar. But, but we had a project. We had to sew a shirt. Like, come on. Need, you know, thread the needle, pass me. You know, sew a shirt, you got to be kidding me. So, teacher lays out patterns of a shirt. Now I have to do this, so I grab a pattern for a shirt, and I'm like, this is a cool-looking shirt. I'm going to make it for my sister, Beth. She'll love it. Okay? Now I'm into it. I'm cutting this thing out and trying to do it exactly right, and then, um, then i got to sew this thing, and, and I'm hoping that at the end it's, it, there's a resemblance to this shirt. I, I hope it resembles the picture somewhat because after all, Beth's going to love it. I'm sure of it. She said she loved it. It, it, it didn't really resemble well, and I'm not sure it was hardly um, good enough to wear. But I had to follow a pattern. And if I hadn't followed that pattern, I wouldn't even got anything that resembled a shirt. I had to follow a pattern. And I had to cut where the pattern was and honor the boundaries and honor that pattern and go by the pattern so I could ha- be e- effective and have the end result would be that which would be pleasing. Similarly, we are called to follow a pattern. God has a pattern for his church. As Paul told Titus, elders are a part of that pattern. There's a call on their life. And so Paul tells Titus, Titus, set the pattern clear. So as we live together as God's people, those who have that call could lead clearly, could serve faithfully, so that the end result would be that which is pleasing, not to the people, but to the great shepherd the head of the church. Let's pray. Lord, it is a privilege to serve you in any capacity. You, the head of the church, would call us to be part of what you're doing in this world is humbling to say the very least. There's not a man or woman in this church right now who doesn't, I'm sure, stand in awe of the fact that in our sinfulness, our faulty attitudes at times, that you, by the indwelling of your Spirit, would choose to use us. We thank you for that. And God, together this morning, we pray that you would bring spiritual renewal, not only at Elam, but churches in this community, this state. Renew us as your people such that you become our highest priority. Your kingdom would be expanded, lives would be changed, that we together as your people would shine with love and unity. Might our desire to be obey, to obey you, our head, 
might that be our greatest desire. And God, may you bring fruit from our availability to your Holy Spirit to serve in places you choose for us. This morning we've considered your call on those who would be elders in your church. And for those elders who serve now, we pray for them. I pray that their ministry would be a joy, not a burden. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you, God, for the choices these men make to strive to live above reproach. I affirm them, God, and can personally testify their heartbeat for your church, their love for your people, their pursuit of Christ's likeness. So, God, I praise you for these men that surround me. I praise you for those men who stood, who served in the past years, who served you faithfully, who served you well, who helped lead Elam, were part of, and are part of your kingdom work. God bless them. Help them to know their ministry had an impact. It wasn't in vain. Even, Lord, if there were difficult times, God, affirm them this day. I would ask that, God. I pray both for the leaders in this church and the church as a whole. Would you continue, God, to find us functioning according to your pattern in love, in humility, so, Lord, that you would be pleased by the way we live out your call in our life individually and corporately. So help us to be firm in your truth and your design and your pattern to the praise and glory of your name. Amen.